Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Okay, so number one, we want to look at Jesus power over nature. Um, and the people in these, so I'm going to tell you two different stories out of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. And the people in the next couple of miracles had a need for peace because there were storms coming into their life and Jesus supernaturally provided peace for them. That, so that's kind of the title of my message, Peace for the Disturbed. How many of you would agree the world has got a lot of disturbing things going on right now, really being shaken? And God is, of course, involved in that, behind it. And in fact, I don't know if you know, there's a verse that says, God will shake everything that can be shaken so that only those things that are unshakable will remain. The only, the only place that is solid ground is on the rock of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is, uh, I want to show you a picture here of the stormy seas and kind of just to paint the background. And let's read verses, uh, or I'll read verses 23 through 27 to you. It says in verse 23, now when he, Jesus, got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest, read storm, arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Now, I want you to go to the next picture. Try to imagine these guys on this boat uh, and, and a storm arising. They think they're going to die. Jesus is asleep. They wake him up and say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. In verse 26, but he said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and sea obey him? Go to the last picture we have of the disciples on the storm. Now, we know that Jesus had how many disciples? 12. Did you know that half of them, we know some of them were fishermen, right? Did you know that most Bible commentators believe that literally half of the disciples, six out of the 12, that was their living. They were fishermen, day laborers, common workers, working with the nets. So they were experienced fishermen, okay? Professional experienced fishermen. I do want to add this though. Um, that, that while half of them were fishermen, I don't think they were necessarily really good fishermen. Because how many times you read the Bible and they fished all night and they caught nothing? <laughs> but anyway, so this storm arises. Now, what's interesting is uh, Jesus has just been in some of the little fishing villages in southern Galilee. Galilee is, is really a lake when you actually, it's called a sea. Um, but it really is kind of a lake. It's about 13 miles long and about eight miles wide. 
It is also, interestingly, when you look kind of down upon it from above, it's in the shape of an ancient Hebrew harp. And they say that from the ancient times of David writing Psalms, there's something supernaturally melodious and beautiful and tranquil about the presence of God around the Sea of Galilee. However, on the southern, you know, these little fishing villages where many of the disciples were from, like Peter um, and his brother, that there's a mountain called Arbel, very tall mountain, and then there's hills on the other side of a valley, which creates a funnel. And then strong winds that blow across the desert will, will come, and they, when they get through that funnel, they explode onto the sea of the southern part of Galilee to this day. The guys, the three guys that were standing next to uh, your pastor Ed, and Daniel, the guy in the far left, who said, I am Daniel the fisherman. He is a Jewish guy, Israeli guy, born in Israel, and is a, is a modern fisherman. They're still fishing, uh, and professional sailors on the modern Sea of Galilee. And Daniel, uh, by the way, is a great story, because he was Israeli and Jewish, and of course, he lived in Galilee, and he would take the Christians uh, on all these tours, and you go out on the Sea of Galilee, and then you stop for a while, and you read the scriptures like this story. You talk about Jesus. So he heard, he said, I heard preachers from all over the world telling the story of Jesus and calming the sea. And he goes, and finally one day it dawned on me, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. And he became a believer. Is that awesome or what? He is a believer. It's wonderful. But Daniel would tell you if he were here this morning, they still get violent storms and people still die. Sometimes as they go out, if they're not in the right place, um, and, and it can happen. So this is happening. Now, here's a question that I want to ask you. Why would Jesus knowingly lead his disciples into storms. Jesus knows everything. He's God in human flesh. So why would Jesus knowingly lead his disciples into a storm that he knew is going to meet them? And if I could add a follow-up question, why would he lead you and me sometimes into storms? We're his kids. We're his disciples. We're his followers. We are believers. We want to be with Jesus, just like the disciples. And Jesus says, okay, guys, come on. We got to get into the boat. I know we had some exciting times last night. Miracles happening, people getting healed, demons being cast out, revivals breaking out. But my father spoke to me. We need to go to the other side of the lake. We need to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. God still has more to do. Okay, and they get in. And the next thing you know, they're in a storm. They think they're going to perish. And part of their thinking is, Lord, don't you care? One of the other gospels says, don't you care? Don't you see that we're panicking, that we're perishing, we're going to die? And you're asleep. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever, as a child of God, as a believer, been following to the best of your ability the Lord? The next thing you know, you get hit by a storm. It comes out of the side, out of nowhere, and you're being blown about, and you're going, Lord, you have all power. You have all authority. Don't you care about me? Don't you see me here suffering? So I wonder if I speak to someone that maybe right now you're in a season in your life where you got a storm raging. When I mentioned the idea of a storm, a tempest, and it's violent coming against you, you're going, yeah, man, I, I know that. I feel that. So what is going on? Why would the Lord lead us in that way? So here's what I want to give you some of the answers. Number one, 
These are some lessons I've pulled out of this story. Number one, to teach us some things. Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples something so powerful, so supernatural. Now, you and I just read the story. We know how it ends. They didn't know that. But because they learned this lesson in a storm, it, you know, when you're in a storm, everything is awake. Your eyes are awake. Your emotions are awake. You're like, ah! And you will never forget it. God knows how to teach us some, and some things, I might add, we can only learn in the storms, all right? Now, here, number two, let's observe this. The storm came because they obeyed the Lord. Now, that's a weird one. Um, they're following the Lord. They're, they're obedient. Jesus got into the boat. Come, guys, get into the boat. We got to go to the other side. My father said, so they get in. So they're being obedient, and then a storm comes. So I want you to know this. Sometimes as Christians, we're doing the best we can to follow and serve the Lord, and this radical storm comes, and the enemy comes in. He's roaring and threatening, and we think, what, what did I, did I do something wrong? Answer, no. Sometimes when we are listening to the Lord and obeying the Lord, God has allowed a storm to teach us some things for a purpose. Now, let me also say this. Sometimes, other times, storms come because we're out of the will of God. So you have to discern, Lord, what, which one is it? Am I following you or am I not? How many of you remember a guy, a prophet named Jonah? You guys remember Jonah? God comes to this prophet Jonah. He goes, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Those people are wicked, man, day and night. And so I want you to tell them I'm judging them. You tell them they got 40 days. My hammer is coming down. Nineveh is going to be judged. What does Jonah do? He goes, uh-uh, not me. I'm not giving that message. He, he, God says, go this way to Nineveh. Jonah's like, no, I'm going to And he gets in a boat, and he goes in the opposite direction. Now, why did Jonah do that? I mean, God says, you know, here's the reason. Because Jonah knew, if I go to Nineveh, as wicked as those people are, and I don't like them, and I'm a prejudice against them, but if I go give the message that God's going to judge them in 40 days, they might repent. And knowing God, he's so loving and caring and gracious and forgiving and tenderhearted, he might forgive them. I don't want him to forgive them. I want him to go ahead and judge them. So I'm not going to give the message. I'm going to get in a boat and go in the opposite direction. And guess what happens? He gets into the boat. He's going away from God. And what happens? A storm arises. Stops the boat from being able to move forward. So sometimes storms come because we're not in the will of God, and God's stopping us, and He's trying to get our attention. And so the, you know, sailors, who are many of them, most of them are superstitious, they go, something's wrong. This storm has got a spiritual vibe to it. What it you know, and they do their little divining thing, and they go, it came down to that stranger Hebrew guy, who are you? And he goes, well, actually, you found me out. The whole reason this storm is coming and you guys can't make any progress or headway is because God, he's really the creator of the whole universe. All the God, gods you worship are false and idols. I worship the one true God. And he told me to go preach to these people and I don't want to because he might forgive them. So you would think that at that moment he's found out, he would say, so listen guys, turn the boat around, start heading back, drop me off, the storm will leave and you'll be fine. Instead, what does Jonah say? He says, throw me over this side of the boat. Throw me over the side of the boat. Why? 
Because Jonah basically was saying, he knows what will happen in a storm. He goes, I'll go glub, glub, glub down and I'll die. He goes, I would rather die than go preach to them and have God forgive them. That's how serious he was in his prejudice. He's a prophet of God. Can there be pride and prejudice within the family of God? Yes, there can. So he goes down, glub, 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 perfectly willing to die. And what? A big fish comes, boom, swallows him. He's like, fine, I'm going to be in a fish, die here. He keeps living for three days and three nights. He's like, when am I going to die in here, you know? And the next thing you know, after three days and nights, God gives the fish a, a bellyache, and he basically vomits up Jonah on a shore. So Jonah, he's still alive. And when he lands there, I think there was a wooden sign saying, Nineveh, right this way, go here. <laughs> so sometimes storms come because we're out of the will of God. God's trying to get your attention, wake you up. But sometimes you're in the will of God. You're doing the best you can. Still, the storm comes. So we have to discern that. Number three, Jesus is asleep in the storm because he rested in his Father's will. This is a story, these disciples, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I think they would never forgot it. While the waves are sweeping over this small vessel, Jesus is found sleeping after an exhausting day. Jesus has spent the evening praying for people, ministering to people, casting out demons. How many Christians can attest to the fact that ministering to people, praying for people, listening to their problems and their trials and counseling and encouragement can be very exhausting? So Jesus, on a human level, was saying, man, yeah, I need to rest. But even in a death-defying storm, he was able to sleep. Not just because he is the Messiah. Everything Jesus did had a twofold purpose. Number one, to demonstrate, I'm not from just here, guys. I came from up there. I'm divine. I and my Father are one. But number two, he was also showing us, I'm setting an example for you to follow. How many of you would love to go through a death-defying storm, but to have such confidence in the presence of God and in the will of God that it doesn't bother you or disturb you in the least? In fact, you're so relaxed, so calm, so confident in the care of your Father that you can be at perfect rest and sleep and peace in the midst of a storm. How many would like that kind of faith? All right, well, this is the way to get it. We learn these lessons in the storm. And, you know, this is what the disciples could have done as well. Let me, let me put it to you kind of like this. Um, a storm, storms God allows. You may be in a storm right now. If you're not in one now, don't worry, you'll be in one by the end of the week, okay? They just keep coming. Until we get to heaven, we're going to have storms. But know this, and this is what you learn from when you're just a baby believer you start growing up a little bit. You start learning something. Here's, here's the secret of a mature believer. You learn that in every single storm in your life that God foreknew, He puts you on a track so that He guides you through the storm. You will always survive the storm. You will always arrive on the other side. Everything will be okay, and you'll learn over and over and over again. You know, I really... When, knowing that the way God is, I could have taken a nap and I didn't need to waste all that time being anxious and worried. Hallelujah. It's kind of like going, you know, to a ride at Disneyland. Uh, you know, my, my kids here, the grandkids, they love going to Disneyland. And they, they, they love, when I was a kid, I loved all the roller coaster rides. Now that I'm 60, not as much as I did when I was a kid. Can you feel me on that? So anyway, but these, the kids are like, yeah, but we want to go on the one, you know, <laughs> 
Papa's head turns red, and he's like going to scream and all of that. So you wait two hours in line for a two-minute ride. So you get in line, and there you are, and all of a sudden, the bar goes down, and then that, that frightening sound, the thing turns up like this, and it goes click, 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 right, as you go up. Then finally, you arrive at the top. You kind of balance a little bit. They give you about three seconds to look 30,000 feet below where you're going to splat in just a minute, right? And then, boom, you go down, and you scream, and you're, you're saying, dear God, don't let them take that stupid picture where my face just looks like weird or whatever. You get to the bottom, and then, boom, you end, and you're just like, I survived. <laughs> the kids go, Papa, let's do it again. <laughs> you're like, no. But in a way... Our storms, look, you're gonna, the bar's going to go down, you're safely inside, you're on a track, you're going to make it to the other side, might as well have fun with the kids, yell and scream, and have a great time. Amen? All right, number four, it shows us Jesus has power over our circumstances. As, as he rebuked the wind and the waves, the sea became astonishingly silent. This could have only come by a miracle of the power of God. Obviously, this was not the work of a mere man or even of a gifted rabbi. Jesus is demonstrating his eternal power. He literally can turn your circumstances around at his word, at his will, at his command, and he will make it in your favor. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you know what the secret Greek meaning of the word all is? It means all. There is nothing secret about it. He will work all things together for your good and mine. I believe after that experience, the disciples' faith grew in new ways from having gone through that storm with Jesus, and so will we. Number five, the question is not how bad the storms are, but rather, do you have Jesus in your boat? in your life, along with you. You were never meant to live life alone or in your own strength or in your own power. All right, let's go to the second story, which is Jesus' power over spiritual forces. And this is the last story that we're going to share from verses 28 through 34, because this is what happened when they actually got off the ride and the storm and, and arrived on the other side. We read beginning of verse 28, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, read, extremely violent, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. This is where we have the first swine dive over the cliff. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but you've heard of the swan dive? This is the swine dive. Okay, it bombed just like it did first service. Okay, don't put that when you go from. This is also the first case ever of deviled ham anywhere in the Bible. I just thought I'd mention that. Okay, so then, verse 33, then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city 
and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men, they got delivered. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. They were frightened. He's got more power than the demons were scared of him. So what, what does this tell us? Uh, this is, wh why did Jesus go to the other side? This is probably a non-Jewish area. Why? Because they're raising pigs. If you know anything about Jews, they don't eat pork, right? So they're Gentiles. And what it shows is that Jesus cared not only about his own family and his own tribe and the Jewish people, he cares about the Gentiles and he cares about the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, every nation, every language, every kindred, and every tribe. So what were these two men? They were demon-possessed. In the scriptures, demons are part of the fallen angels who rebelled against God long ago before the foundations of this world. The chief cherub among them is called Satan, or Satan, the adversary. He used to be there, the highest ranking of angel cherub, but he fell away from God, rebelled against him, wanted to be like God. And he leads lesser spirits, fallen angels, that are described as demonic spirits. And I wanted to just make, you know, this one comment. I know that uh, you know, for many of you here, you probably, okay, yeah, we know that, or we believe that, and we're part of that. But I also know there may be a percentage of people that are here, and especially millennials. Uh, there are many of them, they, they don't believe so much maybe in the supernatural and say, eh, my parents believe all that hocus pocus. I believe in science. I believe in what you can see, what you can test, and everything else. And I, just, and I know also that there's some of you here, you've got prodigals that are out, and they're not following the Lord or whatever. And so I just want to say this. Um, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every young man. I pray for every young woman. I pray for every millennial. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for every prodigal who's fallen away. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that God would pull the scales from your eyes. I pray in the name of Jesus that he would reveal to you it's all real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Angels are real. Demons are real. A day when we'll all stand before God is coming. And may you know that because you can't know how to find purpose in your life until your blinders are taken off and you find out what the real world is all about. Can I hear an amen on that? So may that happen. Now, this story is most revealing. It shows what Satan does to a man. I also want to say this. I think, you know, this is an important message because... Do you realize around the time of Jesus, there was an acceleration of demonic activity on the earth? Why? Because it was the first coming of the Messiah. God had left heaven and come to the earth, and the enemy was there to oppose it. May I also suggest to you that biblically, read the book of Revelation, there will be an accelerated amount of demonic activity as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we need to be aware of that. That's part of what this is all about. So this shows what Satan does to a man. Number one, he takes away our sanity and self-control and gives us fear. Now the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now I'm not talking human fear. A, I'm talking a spirit of fear. It's overpowering. You can't seem to shake it or grip, get, get a grip on it. Anxiety. It could have a demonic element that you are being pinged by demonic warfare. Number two, it destroys home and friends. 
The enemy is about destroying marriages, destroying relationships, destroying between parents and their children, vice versa, even among friends. It's anything that's got to do with division has an element of the supernatural, evil, demonic spirits. Number three, it condemns him to an eternity of judgment. And the Bible doesn't give any wiggle room for that. It's like, as long as forever is, that's how long the judgment will come. Now, here's another interesting thing. This story reveals what demons believe. Not just what we believe, what the Bible believes, what disciples believe, but there's demons mentioned in here, and they talk and say stuff, and it's revealed what demons believe. Number one, note, they believe in the existence of God. They know there's a God. They know the spirit world is real. In your notes is James chapter 2, verse 19. Let's read that scripture out loud together. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. James is saying, hey, you believe in God? Big deal. Do you have saving faith? Because even the demons know that the devil is real and that he exists. You got to have a saving faith. Number two, demons believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They're not only aware of the spiritual realm, they know the identity of Jesus. They know that he is deity. They know that they have to yield to him, and in the laws of the kingdom of the universe and beyond in the spiritual realm, they have to obey and submit and honor whatever he says. Demons believe in the deity of Christ. Number three, they believe in the reality of future judgment. If you come to judge us before the time, if we, you know, give us a way out. And so they go into swine, which is a whole other weird element to it, but it's part of the story. Notice that this story also reveals what society does to a man. Number one, it restrains him. Secondly, it isolates and threatens him. But most importantly, society is unable to change him. Now, I know you guys have a lot of ministry. You're reaching out, and you're going into prisons, and you're helping kids, and all of that kind of stuff. But know this, the same community right here in Aurora is no different than the community within San Diego. The enemy often starts when we are children, and he will find a vessel that is rebellious and lustful or whatever to influence them to abuse us or wound us when we are young. And he plants a hook, and all of a sudden, all of, and we grow up with that. And we may hear the gospel, but we're constantly in this struggle and so forth. I want you to know it's a radical battle between good and evil, between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. It's not a mere philosophical thing to be a Christian and walk with God. It is a literal super... If you get saved, you are literally dragged out, as it were, of the gates of hell, delivered from demonic powers more overpowering than you. And only in Christ do you find freedom to live in love and joy and peace and experience His Holy Spirit, have hope for the future, and a purpose for your life day to day until we get into the kingdom. Amen? It's real all the way through and through. So society is unable to change him. We can lock him up. We can give a certain level of justice, but we can't change him. What does Jesus do for someone whose life is bondage and battle? What did Jesus do for these two men? He delivered them. And what Jesus did for them, he will do for you. He can deliver us from drug addiction. He can deliver us from sexual abuse, emotional abuse, 
physical abuse, he can deliver you. He can take every poisonous dart out of your heart. He can restore you. He can heal you. He can literally transform you from the inside to the outside. In fact, I want to say this. All of us have certain miseries we've endured in this fallen, broken world. And guess what? When you allow the Holy Spirit and Jesus to come in to wash you, cleanse you, heal you, forgive you, transform you, and deliver you, out of your misery comes your ministry. God will use the very things that you experienced and were set free from and delivered from to help the next generation, to help the ones that are coming up, and the little ones, and the boys, and the girls, and the next generation to love them and to bless them. So he delivered them by the power of his word, number one. Number two, he restored their sanity and their peace. And God can give you a peace that passes all understanding, and his word becomes precious. These are not just, you know, philosophical thoughts. These are divine truths, are like divine seeds that get planted in your mind and heart. And when they grow up, they bear supernatural fruit called the fruit of the Spirit. So in closing, I want to just share this. What do we learn about spiritual warfare? This is my last point as we wrap it up. Number one, we learn a believer cannot be demon-possessed. <laughs> can I hear a hallelujah on that? <laughs> hallelujah. Hallelujah. So there's three parts to us, all right? We're made in the image of God. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's three parts to every human being. We're three, and yet I'm only one. But there's three parts to me. The outside is like a body, the outer court of the temple. The outer court is like the body. The inner court, called the holy place, is like the soul. Your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your soul. Inside of that was the holy of holies. That is the only place God manifests. Let his visible glory be seen. Guess what? When you get saved in your holy of holies, the deepest part of you, the Holy Spirit comes and makes your dead spirit alive. You're born spiritual. You're born again, born anew. And his spirit and your spirit become one. And the devil can never get between you and the Holy Spirit for the rest of eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But notice number two. But a believer can be demonically oppressed. Now, oh, okay, I'm saved. I know I'm, I the gospel and I believe in Jesus. But guess what? You can be afflicted on the outside. Many times Jesus would heal and cast out demons and then heal and cast out demons. It's not that demons necessarily cause physical illness, but they often attach themselves to our physical weakness to make us say, wow, God let you have this disease or that illness or that virus or that accident. Man, and then they want you to blame God. So they oppress you from your weakness on your outer temple. Or they come into your mind and they plant thoughts, rebellious thoughts, independent thoughts. God's not fair. God doesn't like you. God doesn't love you. This isn't right. You've done all of this and look what has happened to you. So we can be, we have to take, the Bible says, every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize when it's a lie. Here's what the devil do. He'll, he'll put a lie inside of you and plant it, and then he'll turn around and say, I can't believe you just had that thought, and you call yourself a Christian. He plants the thought, and then he blames you for having the thought. The whole, and then your, your, our weaknesses, we think, oh, it was me. I can't believe I thought that. No, that's not me, and that's not the Holy Spirit. That's from the enemy, and that's a lie, and I reject it, and I resist it in the name of Jesus. Amen? 
So we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we can be delivered. Number three, we can be delivered by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more real or supernatural than that. By His Word, His presence, His Spirit, His Word in your life, and you yielding yourself to Him, you can have victory after victory. Go from the storm into the rest where you are at peace, even in the midst of the storm. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And I want to ask, first of all, there may be somebody here that, you know, you were raised in the church or you know the gospel, you heard it, you accepted it, but maybe you're not exactly haven't been walking with God. So your, your, your life is kind of a mixed bag right now. God loves you too much to let you be comfortable in compromise or in sin or in your addictions or your compromises or, you know, and, and you're probably torn. It's a miserable, the most miserable uh, people on the planet are carnal Christians. <laughs> they're never at peace. They know too much to accept it, but they're weak. So you might need to recommit your life to Jesus Christ. There may be others of you that you've never, never, nobody ever explained to you that, you, you know, there's a part where Jesus said, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come inside of you and sup with you, which is a Jewish way of saying we will become family over a meal. And you were never meant to live life alone in your own head with your own thoughts. That'll drive you nuts. <laughs> You were never meant to live in your own strength. You were never meant to live in your own power or by your own wits or your own abilities, you know, gifts that God may have given you, but you were never meant to live alone. Jesus knocking on the door means he's always been with you from the time you were conceived in your mother's womb. He's always been there, right next to you. But salvation is different. What a gentleman he knocks on the door of your heart. He, he, it's very gentle, very, and it's in your conscience. He says, if you let me in, I will forgive you of everything you've ever done wrong. I'll wash and cleanse your conscience with my blood. I'll give you a new spirit. You'll be born again, and you'll start growing in my ways and getting ready because you are my son. I've prepared an eternal, glorious future. I have such wonderful plans, but I can't start those until you invite me inside. What a gentleman. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to ask everybody that knows the Lord already, I want you to pray with me and pray out loud as well. The reason is I kind of liken it to, you know, you're married and then you renew your vows. It doesn't mean you're not married. What it means when you renew your vows is if I had it to do all over again, honey, I would do it. In fact, the words mean more to me today and I love you more now than I did at the beginning. So you can pray out loud. For those recommitting their lives, Maybe you pray out loud. This could be a turning point for you. And maybe there's someone listening that for the very first time, you're asking, you're going to get saved. Your eternal future will never be the same. So if you're willing, would you pray with me? Pray out loud after me uh, as we just go through this very simple prayer. So let's pray, if you're willing, after this manner. Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. And I am so sorry for everything that I have done wrong. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. 
Wash me in your holy blood. I open the door of my heart, and I ask you to come into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I receive the gift of eternal life. Now help me follow you, Jesus, all the way to heaven until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.